Welcome to another episode of Hemp Barons. I'm Dan Humiston, and on today's show, Joy speaks with a sixth-generation Iowa farmer about natural crop management by using hemp as a rotational crop. They also discuss the work they're doing and the challenges that they're facing getting hemp approved as a feed for animals. Let's join Joy's conversation with Ethan Forhays. Well, Ethan Voorhees, thank you so much for being with us on Hemp Barons today. Well, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure and a privilege, Ethan. The amount of advocacy work that you do, just a hardcore, hardworking farmer. How many generations, by the way, has the Voorhees family been farming in Iowa? I'm six generations, and so my kids will be seven. And the kids will be seven. Wow. And I know that you've been uh, raising beef, pork, and poultry on a non-GMO grain farm in northern Iowa for for many, many years, and that you have long since now recognized the power of hemp in the ag seed system, in the regenerative agricultural system, and that you work very diligently on these efforts, speaking all over the country, and in, and in fact, in multiple countries. And as a steering committee member of the Hemp Feed Coalition, you serve on the board of directors of the Friends of Hemp and the board of directors of the Iowa Hemp Association. And before we get into some of that work and what we really want the listeners to know about the status of hemp as ag seed and what it would mean to the American farmer and, frankly, to the regenerative agricultural system, let's talk for a second of how you got into hemp. How on earth did you learn about hemp and what brought you as a gift to this movement? To go back to when I first learned of hemp, my family had grown for the war effort. The remnants of those plants are, are still evident in the ditches and the fence lines here. It wasn't until later that I started to associate it with marijuana, you know, and looking at it as kind of a a taboo thing, you know. It was the Iowa Hemp Association that was hosting a tour of an ethanol plant, and and I believe talking about cellulose makeup of hemp and ability to be grown easily organic. I had seen that and I wasn't able to go that day, but I'd reached out to the association and they were bringing Rick Trojan and the hemp road trip to Iowa so we got together and met face-to-face that day and been friends with the guys. You know, we traveled to, to NOCO later that spring. We just became better friends. You know, they really got me to the point where I met many of the industry people out there and felt their passion and the energy that was in the industry and in Colorado in general. It drew me to it. Like I guess I'm off to a light bulb. All this brilliant people and so much energy and doing a great thing. You know, when you listen to the way that all these people talk about how they grow and what they expect in the future, it's all organic. People out using hemp to make an impact. And and so that's another reason why this industry is so attractive to me and, and drew me in further. Yeah, soil health. As we often say, if it weren't for the top six inches of soil, rainfall and farmers, we would all be dead. So healing the soil, building the soil and taking back the land that we have damaged, not necessarily on the Voorhees farm, which has been utilizing these regenerative agricultural practices for quite some time, but by and large across the planet. And just to fill in for some of the listeners, you know, when Ethan says that there are sort of volunteer or feral hemp still growing in Iowa from the war effort, he's talking about World War II. So we had the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, which effectively taxed and regulated 
hemp out of existence as we began to go through our better living through chemistry stage here in the United States and patents were being made for synthetic polymer, uh, petroleum-based fuels and plastics. Cotton gin had been invented in the late 1800s. The wood cellulose paper making process whole process had been invented. So we regulated and, and taxed hemp out of existence in 1937. But what happened, of course, is World War II. And Japan invaded Manila very strategically and effectively to cut off the United States Navy's supply of hemp, which it needed for all of its rigging, sails, ropes, parachutes, uniforms, laces in the boots, all of backpacks. And so the USDA, and in conjunction with 4-H, had to quickly make this prop, this film, Hemp for Victory, and, and folks listening, if you get on YouTube tonight or when you have some time here, get on YouTube and, and type in Hemp for Victory. Take the one that's about 13 and a half minutes long so you can actually see the USDA's film begging the farmers to grow hemp for the war effort, which the farmers did, in fact, grow 42,000 tons of hemp, I believe, each year through 1946. Then we successfully won the war and went back to this state of taxation and regulation for hemp. And then NOCO that you discussed, Rick Trojan, of course, is the vice president of the Hemp Industries Association, a very dear friend of mine and treasured colleague. I'm the president of the Hemp Industries Association. With his traveling show, The Hemp Road Trip, I did not realize, Ethan, that it was The Hemp Road Trip sort of was that catalyst and brought you to NOCO, the Northern Colorado Hemp Expo, greatest hemp trade show so far. Just amazing stuff. I remember meeting you and the tremendous energy exchange. You really know when you meet somebody who the hemp bug has bitten because the exchange of energy is just so intense. And I very much remember meeting you a few years ago and recognizing you as my brother in arms here that just could not stop talking and doing for the plant. And you won't and you don't. And I thank you for that. You became a stakeholder in Colorado's Hemp Feasibility Study Group. Is that stakeholder group still going, or has that work been done for that particular work group? Yeah, that work group lasted a little less than a year. We broke into three groups. We had a couple of big group discussions, and then we had a couple of kind of our individual regulator, nutrition, feasibility groups, and then a couple of conclusions where we kind of worked out our recommendation, which at the end of the day looks like the Hemp Peak Coalition. You know, it was work together as an industry and bring everybody together, work with the FDA. You can do these other routes, but the fastest is going to be a food additive petition. And so to, to kind of break it down a little bit, you have generally recognized as safe, you have an AFCO route, and you have a food additive petition. Food additive petition goes straight to the FDA. It's very specific. That's the fastest way is to say, we want to use it for this animal, for, for this life stage, for this purpose. This is how we're going to do it. You know, this is what it is. And then work with the FDA to at this point, build some research so that we can kind of prove safety. Because right now, there's no species that have a data set from anywhere in the world that has enough information to kind of show safety. We've got to go back and fill those gaps in the data with research. So that's what we're doing at the coalition right now, has been to kind of identify what hemp seed uh, cake and meal are. You know, like, what's the range of protein? What's the range of processes that it took to get there? And so that when we apply for chickens, let's say, we can say that, you know, we're adding hemp seed meal to the ration. And this is what meal is. 
And then right now, we've got to go back and do some studies with chickens. There's a lot of interest around poultry. And so they seem like a good starting point uh, in the eyes of the coalition because they have a short life cycle. So this means that we can do studies in a shorter period of time with less cost and get species approved where we can really start to open up a market for hemp seed cake that people are pressing this fall or next fall. And the beauty of it is this can be federally legal. Once we go through this process with company and follow all the way through all these different steps, because at the coalition, we don't necessarily petition the FDA. We're facilitating all the information and helping other companies go through the process. So we're trying to be a hub of information and just kind of facilitate the research. Everybody working together, you are a catalyst, a lightning rod really serving you and, and Hunter Buffington and, and Annie Rouse and, and other folks, obviously, you know, Margaret McKenzie, other folks serving are, are really the catalyst. And thank you for unpacking that. And to unpack it further for the listeners, even though we're well aware of the tremendous nutritional benefit of the hemp seed, it is truly the, the food, superfood that deserves a super cake. It's the highest digestible form of protein in the entire plant and animal kingdom. So more digestible protein than, than whey or beef or chicken or soy. This incredible omega-3s and 6 essential fatty acids profile and minerals and vitamins and soluble and insoluble dietary fiber. But none of that is approved for any form of ag feed or even pet feed. It's simply just not approved yet. In order to get things approved here in these developed countries, we have to go through studies and show research to get it approved. And that is a per species. So when you hear Ethan talking about species, these tests, these applications, which are not cheap, they're actually quite expensive, and the research needs to be conducted for each are on a per species basis. So one for swine, one for cattle, one for horses, one for livestock as or, or chickens, as it were. And so the only ones that we can combine are cats and dogs because those are pets and not consumed by humans. The FDA allows that one to be combined. So not only per species, but per ingredient. So a hemp seed oil study per species a hemp seed cake study per species, hemp silage study per species. And that's before we would even get into the cannabinoids, as it were. We're really just talking about the grain at this point. So it's an incredible process and it will improve the health of the animal. It will improve the health and the end consumer. But this needs to be proven through data and science and research in order to make it through the process in this developed country. And so that is some of the incredible work that Ethan does and that these groups that he's involved in also do. Could you then tell the listeners a bit, Ethan, about what you have personally witnessed for your animals feeding them? Because certainly it does go on that despite the fact that it isn't approved, these animals are still being fed this very valuable nutrient. In fact, it's very popular, certainly in the equestrian industry, lots of hemp seed cakes and pellets and pucks and supplements and things being given to them just from the grain alone. A, I'd like to hear what you've noticed with your own animals. And then B, if we could go into how hemp fits into the regenerative cycle of your farming operation and then typical of others. My cattle have only browsed on wild hemp. And so I've never actually fed them the grain that we're proposing to do. I felt that it's been important to to work through all these proper channels with the FDA. And I met with Iowa State here last week trying to get them on board for helping me work towards my goals here. 
We've got a number of studies proposed and some that are already FDA approved in the case of the one out in CSU. I feel we're very, very close. You know, but what I can say is, is that I've talked to a number of producers who have. And what we are seeing is, for example, there was a case in Pennsylvania, a farmer named Bill Roberts fed a number of heifers, hemp seed cake and a conventional pellet. And I want to say going into like an eight-week study, they, the calves that were fed hemp were a little lighter. Uh, and at the end of the study, they were 20 pounds heavier. They outgained the competition drastically. And so that's what I'd always expected. But when I've seen what other farmers have done it, it's just kind of what we expect. I'm really looking forward to getting the scientific data, moving past the anecdotal, and really starting to break down where the fiber gets to play in, you know, how much is digestible, where in the cattle is digested, you know, whether it's the rumen or the intestine. The real science of it, being able to say this is what hemp is and, and this is what it can do, because I think we all know that the, the high-quality nature of the plant and the product is going to give us a, a better system. And that's what we're looking for is to replace the whole system, not just one component. It's in the soil regenerative part of our farming operation is, as much as it is creating a, a healthier animal and a, a better end product in our meat. Indeed. I and I did not realize, I thought for some reason that there were some of the animals on Voorhees Farm were involved in that study. And I, I did not realize, sorry for misspeaking there, brother. And indeed, some of the concern is on bioaccumulation of THC, because I remember of several sessions ago in the state of Washington, I'm, you know, I moved back recently to the great state of New York, the Empire State, a couple of years ago, but was in Washington for 21 years before that. And I think it was around the 2015 legislative session where a law was passed for the Washington State Department of Ag to do a study on hemp seed and the lying hen or the laying hen. And a year later and 40 pages later on that study, the issue in the end was we need more research on the bioaccumulation of THC because of a perception concern that folks wouldn't want to buy eggs from Washington state or milk from Washington cows if they thought that the milk and the eggs were going to get them high. Talk about for a second, and then I do want to absolutely get into the regenerative agriculture and more that the way that hemp fits into basically permaculture in general, the agricultural scheme, the the business of agriculture and, and all of that. But how about what you've noticed about concerns around bioaccumulation and, and perception being a challenge here? I think the perception has changed. You know, I, there was a poll that Farm Journal put out about producers and how many of them would be willing to feed hemp to their animals. And I think the number was in the upper 40s that would feed hemp to their animal. And, you know, there was a number that said they needed to know more and stuff. Some said flat out no, but the overwhelming majority was yes. I think that kind of shocked me and gave me a perception of where our country's at. There are fears. I, I don't think that it's kind of like the end of the world, like the FDA is saying this isn't going to work. You know, they're they're saying, hey, bring us some research. We're absolutely willing to to hear what you have to say. And the only reason you don't have hemp feeds is because nobody's ever brought us this information or tried to pursue this path before. At this point in time, it's hard to understand the feasibility of it. But when you start to think big picture of we're going to go out and, and raise it for fiber or one of these other products, eventuality or inevitable that you're going to have grain to go with it. And with all this grain, I mean, we've already got enough producers around the world, you know, producing the, the food market to the point where we do have some CK stockpiles. We need more markets, you know, and this is a great market for it. So it's like, it's only a matter of time before we kind of line that all up that are able to, to access that. When it goes back to the, the accumulation part of it, 
I don't think that you could find a model where having some residues in there would be bad for a person. You know, I don't think that you'd find anything where it'd be bad for the, the animal. I have heard of, through my work at the coalition, that there are accumulation of like THC in, in the brains of dogs, for example. And so I think that it does need to be studied. But I think if you were to apply hemp as an animal feed to like the cattle industry, for example, with these terminal animals, you'll never notice so much cannabinoids going into them that it'd be harmful to them or, or even some kind of a setback. You know, if anything I ever imagined, it would be that some accumulation would be beneficial. They're going to be out there standing in a feedlot and their joints aren't going to hurt. Of course. And it was, of course, such a huge part of animal feed in our nation's history and throughout the world historically. So it is, it gets frustrating. Obviously, we're in a developed country, strong feelings, and they used to do this all the time. It is not enough to get something approved and into our agricultural system here. But I'm very excited. Prohibition, of course, was put quite a damper on the ability to perform this research. And now that those barriers are being lifted and the movement is on steroids and so much interest now, um, I'm very excited to see that research. And by the way, you know, as I often say, I am very privileged and pleased to be part owner of Colorado Hemp Works, which is a, a hemp grain processing facility in Longmont, Colorado. And when you say there are stockpiles of seed cake, why, yes, sir, there certainly is. I can attest to that. Bursting at the seams with stockpiles of seed cake because the hemp oil presses are going seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and then producing that incredibly nutrient and protein rich and valuable seed cake that needs to then be either milled into protein powder or made into other products, but could most absolutely be sent off for animal feed, the most valuable, nutritious animal feed available. And yet it's being stockpiled because of these legal issues. So the work that you're doing is so important, not only for the health of animals and the health of humanity, the health of the hemp economy. And now let's talk about the health of the soil. I've heard you make this discussion in, in several of your presentations and about how hemp in your rotation and as an ag feed, how that improves your farm and even your farm's bottom line. Could you talk to the listeners about that a little bit? I like to compare uh, hemp to soy because it's oilseed nature. I think of my operation in the cattle, for example, where we want corn as part of our ration, but we need a rotational crop. You just don't grow corn year on year without having compound problems. And, and the same with beans or a lot of these other crops. You're going to find multiple years, you're going to have some mold or a, a corn borer attack your plant. And so if you just rotate, that usually helps prevent those problems. I think that's where the, the beauty of hemp comes in. We want to have hemp follow corn in our rotation. And we think corn is a decent companion crop. So we've got the, the animal manure. The corn has a good canopy. For example, looking out my window today, there's probably not many weeds in the, the cornfield and the sun doesn't get to get down to the soil and heat it up as we get cooler. But the soybeans across the road, they've dropped their canopy weeks ago and the sun's beating down on the ground and it's warm here and there's perennials starting to germinate all over the field. Now, they'll be there next spring and they'll be big and we'll have to fight them. Typically, a farmer has two choices. He has tillage or he has spray. And in both of those cases, we're kind of inhibiting the food web. We're harming the soil microbiology. Uh, we're inhibiting it. And beyond that is just that the, the beans are dead and there's no sugars being sequestered in the ground for the microbes. With hemp, stays green and living kind of deeper into the fall. And there's a number of different models that a farmer can use, but that crop has A, a strong canopy, 
and keeps living and keeps feeding those sugars. So I think it's great for the soil in a number of different ways. Once you start taking your corn and your hemp out and you have livestock, typically you can utilize cover crops. So that's kind of the additional thing that needs to be part of the farm system, working with the other cover crops. What happens then is, is that you have a system where you don't let weeds back in your rotation. So then you couple precision ag with crop choices and it isn't long and you're really doing a ton of great things for that soil with what's happening with the root, what's happening with not having weeds and not having to till and spray because you just have a good clean system set up. So in that mechanism, I think we fight climate change and we feed the world at the same time. That indeed. And I, I think probably many listeners don't realize when we talk about till disrupting the soil food web or that incredible ecosystem that lives in the soil that feeds the roots, that feeds the plant, that creates the quality of that plant in terms not only, of course, of yield, bottom line for farmers, but also in its nutritional profile or if you're growing for fiber to potentially even increase its surface area or pencil strength. So that microbial environment is so important. And when we till, it's like Hurricane Katrina going through a town. It just completely disrupts all of that beautiful ecosystem that actually is lives in that soil. It's literally a tornado that comes through. And then, of course, spraying, same thing, only it's not a tornado, it's chemicals. So, so very important. And did you mention something there about integrative pest management in terms of just crop rotation and, and that it's beneficial for your crop rotation in that respect as well? Yeah. Yep. A good example is the, in the corn. We use soy to sequester some nitrogen, but also to give a buffer a year for the corn borers and all the insect pressure that goes into the corn crop. And it holds over from year to year. And so that's just a good way to utilize hemp then to kind of get in the middle there and be that buffer for that pest management. There's another number of things a person can do on farm to farm is to have a buffer around the field with pollinators and attract the beneficial pests around the perimeter of your field to kind of ward off invasions. And let me ask you this, this incredible work that you do on the farm, you also produce an incredible product because I know every time the hemp crowd knows or the hemp tribe knows that Ethan's showing up, they all say, oh, I hope he brought his sausages. I hope he brought his this and his that. What are the products that you're making right now and how can people support the work that you're doing and support as a sixth generation farmer, the incredible contribution that you make to this country and certainly to this movement. How can people support you by buying those products? My family raises Wagyu cattle, which is a Japanese word for our cow. They're famed for Kobe beef. It's a high value product that around the world sells for about 10x compared to grocery store prices. And so we've been selling it at farmers markets and to individuals, you know, because I want to know who I'm selling to because it's as little of product as I have today. I want to make sure that you know the right people are getting it. I'm looking to build relationships. We want to partner with other people that are like-minded, people that care about saving the planet and want to help farmers. One foot in front of the other and working in tandem, we are doing it, brother, with this. And, and obviously, we want a solid foundation for farmers who are really being the heroes, who are, who are really taking the risk. There is no hemp economy in the United States, and there is no hemp in the United States if the farmers aren't growing it in the United States. And they've been doing it now for since 2014 under the agricultural pilot programs from the 2014 Farm Bill with no crop insurance. And they did it this year 
still, even though with the 2018 Farm Bill, which of course legalized hemp as an agricultural commodity, but because with the USDA is creating its regulations as it was directed to do by Congress, we're still operating under those programs and still without federal crop insurance. So the farmers are the heroes here and we've got to support them. And this evolving infrastructure that gives the farmer a place for their biomass and for their crops to be processed into these 25,000 products that feed every single industry needed by humanity from nutrition and body care to nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals, paper, textiles, building materials, nanotechnology, biocomposites, industrial sealants, and coatings, energy and fuel. Oh my God, somebody stopped me. We're going to get this done though. We need those investors to invest in the infrastructure and we need those farmers to plant those seeds And together we're doing it and we're certainly doing it because of hard work from people like you, brother. I just appreciate the work you do so much. I look forward to seeing you at every event. And it sounds like you can reach Ethan Voorhees and that's B-O-R-H-E-S, his last name, Ethan, E-T-H-A-N-V-O-R-H-E-S on Facebook and LinkedIn and talk to him directly. Ethan, thank you so, so much for being on Hemp Barons. We can't wait to have you back. And again, thank you for everything you do for hemp and for the planet, brother. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.